Have you ever looked through a Where's Waldo book? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like there's a chaotic scene and you're trying to find the little guy in the red and white striped outfit? Okay, so when I was at Moody, um, they would have this massive conference every year called Founders Week. It was a big to-do, very serious, and honestly, it was quite exhausting as a student because there was a bunch of extra stuff we had to do. And so one of my classmates took it upon himself to make it more enjoyable for us by playing Where's Waldo? So he would dress up every session as Waldo, and he looked spot on. And so the game was to find Waldo in this massive auditorium every evening. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And we're going to do something like that tonight with our text. See, tonight we're going to be looking at the story of Esther and Mordecai, which is the story of the book of Esther. A- and while we work through this story, we're going to play a game of Where's God? Uh, as we go through, I, I want us to try and spot him as we work through this story. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, Esther is 10 chapters long, which means we will not have time to touch on everything that happens there, which is okay uh, because we can kind of summarize a little bit by going through the major movements of the story. Uh, Every story has the same feel to it. There's always some background information, which is like the scroll in Star Wars, right? There's always a crisis, and that crisis jump starts most of the story where the tension grows and grows and grows until it's resolved and then there's like the nice little happy ever after. So we can follow that trend through the story of Esther and through each phase we can ask ourselves, okay, where's God? All right, so the text sets the scene for us, gives us the background information in the first two chapters. It opens up telling us that this, this takes place after the fall of Jerusalem in the capital of Persia, in, in a city called Susa. And, and it begins by introducing us to King Ahasuerus, which is very hard for me to say, so I'm just going to use his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Xerxes is not the hero of our story. He, he is a drunken, self-absorbed fool. Uh, And he proves that right away by throwing himself a 180-day party to show off his greatness, which in his mind included his wife, because near the end of the party, he demands that his queen come out and strut around and impress all of the officials. And she was not doing that, so he, he fired her. He banished her as his queen. Eventually, he sobered up and realized how much he missed her, but the deed had already been done. The Persians had this weird rule where once a decree was made, it could never be revoked. And so the king is sad. He misses his his queen. And so his advisors have this great idea. Let's throw a beauty pageant and find him a new one. And this is where we meet our two heroes or protagonists of the story, Esther and her adopted father-slash-uncle, Mordecai. Esther is very beautiful, and so obviously she gets selected for the beauty pageant with these specific instructions from her uncle not to share her ethnic identity. And so two very important things happen to really flesh out the background of our story. First, Esther wins the pageant. She becomes the queen, which is an amazing feat. But then just as amazing and seemingly unconnected is that Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king And because of that, the attempt is thwarted and the king's life is saved. And so with all those pieces in place, we have the scene set. Have you spotted God yet? No? Okay. Maybe he shows up in the crisis, uh, which is really brought to us by a guy named Haman. Uh, Haman was Xerxes' most influential advisor. We're told that other than the king, he was the most powerful, the highest official of all. And we can gather that Haman was both 
powerful, but also power hungry. He was constantly seeking the praise and adoration of others, so much so that he required everyone to bow down to him whenever he rode by. And everyone complied with the exception of Mordecai. Even when people encouraged Mordecai, he refused to bow down to Haman. And this, this really uh, set Haman into a rage. And when he found out that Mordecai was Jewish, he was like, aha, I have the solution. I will exterminate the entire race of Jews. And that, that should bother you a little bit. Why, why would he take the offense of one man and try to wipe out a nation? And the text doesn't really tell us, but we can, we can speculate and come up with two reasons or motives. One is personal, and, and it's connected to our definition of sin. Um, Haman has defined good and evil for himself. It's good that people should bow down to him. And because Mordecai isn't, he's performing an evil, which means the good thing to do is to exterminate him. And it just goes to show you what happens when our, our definitions of good and evil are uh, are divorced from God's definition, all types of horrible things become good things. So there's a personal reason, but there's also a historical reason. I- if you look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that um, Haman was an Agagite. There's a lot of really bad names in this one for me, but it just means that, that he is a descendant of Agag. Agag was an Amalekite king, and the Amalekites hated Israel, so much so that God ordered them to be wiped out. Uh, and and so, so Haman not only had a personal vendetta against Mordecai, he had a, 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 a long-seated hostility toward the Jews. And so he decides he's going to leverage his power to get the king to sign off on the genocide, which actually didn't take a lot of convincing. The text tells us the king happily signed the edict and sat down to have a drink with Haman while the rest of the city was thrown into confusion. Have you spotted God yet? No? Okay. Well, needless to say, Mordecai didn't take the news well. He, he gets a copy of the edict, he sends it to Esther, and he asks her to go and talk to the king about it. And that seems easy enough, but once again, the Persians have some really strange rules. One of them is that if you go into the king's presence unsummoned, you die. Now, of course, the king could extend you grace, but uh, who really wants to uh, take their chances there? And so Esther is not too keen on Mordecai's idea, to, and so he responds in, in probably the, the most powerful statement in the entire book in verses, Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so she agrees, and so she she psychs herself up for for the next three days and finally goes into the king's presence unsummoned. And thankfully, he extends her grace, and he hears her request. Now, if it was me, I probably would have just blurted out what I wanted, like, hey, this guy's trying to kill me. You should do something about that. But instead, Esther invites the king and Haman to dinner. And, you know, if you're going to risk your life to extend someone a dinner invitation, you're kind of obligated to go. And so the king and Haman go, and they they have dinner, and the king's like, okay, now tell me for real, what do you want? 
And she's like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, but you and Haman have to come back for dinner tomorrow night. Meanwhile, Haman's over here, and he's just eating this up, right? His, pl- his pride is inflating. Look at this. It's me and the king, me and the king. I am so special. Even the queen knows it. She's inviting me to dinner. And so he's going home giddy until he sees Mordecai sitting by the gate, not bowing. And so he gets home, and he is angry, and he starts venting to his friends and his family. Look at all this great stuff that's going on for me, but I can't enjoy any of it because of this guy Mordecai. And so they come up with a great idea. Let's build a 75-foot gallows and hang Mordecai from it tomorrow. And so Haman loves the idea, starts the construction, and rushes off to see the king to get permission. Do you see God yet? No? Okay. So he shows up. He asks the king, uh, but before he can ask the king anything, the king cuts him off and says, Haman, what should we do for the man the king wishes to honor? And Haman's like, well, who else could he want to honor but me? And so this is what he says to the king. Uh, Esther chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king loved the idea and said, Great, go do that for Mordecai. Can you imagine the shock and horror that was on Haman's face? Uh, See, what Haman didn't know, that while he was scheming with his friends, the king couldn't sleep. And so, like anyone with insomnia, the king has the events of his life read to him. And he gets to the part where he's almost assassinated, but Mordecai stops it. He's like, oh yeah, I remember that. What did we ever do for that guy? He realizes he did nothing for him. So he's over there pondering, trying to figure out, what can I do to thank Mordecai? Haman walks in, and he hands the problem off to Haman. And I, I, you, 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 it's very important, do not miss the irony here, that Haman showed up to have Mordecai executed, but instead he has to parade Mordecai around announcing how great he is. The irony can't be lost on us, and the irony certainly wasn't lost on his wife. When Haman got home, <laughs> he told her about his horrible day, and she's like, mm-mm, it's not going to end well for you. And right then the king's guards come and take him to dinner where Esther reveals that she's the Jew and that Haman's trying to kill her and her, per- her people. And so our story kind of ends, at least for Haman, with uh, him ending up on the gallows intended for Mordecai. And so the king, being in need of a new advisor, promotes Mordecai to Haman's position, and Esther and, and him are able to reverse the king's edict and save the Jews. And it was such a momentous event that the Jews actually still celebrate it. Every February 26th and 27th, they celebrate Purim. It's a great story, but did you spot God in any of it? You shouldn't have been able to because he isn't there. God is never mentioned in this story. In in fact, uh, the Hebrew name for Esther is Hadessa, which means hidden. The title of the book literally tells you that God is hidden from this story. He's not there. Now, you might want to argue with me a little little bit if you're familiar with the story and say, "Well, well, wait a second. Uh, the fact that Mordecai overheard the plot against the king or that Esther became the new queen or that the king was sleepless that one night, that was God at work. And I would agree with you. 
But there was no way that Esther and Mordecai would have or could have known that. And that's the point I, I, I want us to take from this story. Most of the time, you're not going to be able to see God working in your life. Not until the chapter or maybe the whole story is over. Our role, much like Esther and Mordecai's, is to trust that he's working and act courageously in obedience. And that is a very hard thing to do. We have to have a good reason for why we would do that. And the reason for us is because of God's master plan. Uh, There are large chunks of the Old Testament, if I'm honest, where it looks like God is doing stuff, but it isn't moving toward his goal of crushing the serpent and righting all things. But then we get to this awesome line in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, where it says, But when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, no one saw what God was doing. He used the most mundane of circumstances, birth and death, to defeat the serpent and make a way for all mankind to be redeemed. He was always working, and he was always working for our good. That's why we can trust him. And so I I really just want to leave you with the question that uh, Mordecai left Esther with. God is working to redeem and renew all things. So why has he placed you where he's placed you? What's he doing? And what part does he have for you to play? Thank you.